Matthew chapter 1. We'll start a study in this book tonight that will take us through the better part of this year. We'll take a break for some things like Christmas, things like that. But we're going to study Matthew together. And Matthew is one of four books in the Bible uh, called Gospels. And the word gospel simply means a positive announcement. It means something good has happened and this person wants to tell you about it. And all the gospel writers come from different perspectives, but they all share one conviction, that a good thing has happened and that good thing is Jesus Christ. And so they write to introduce us into this person who is the good news. And they all share the same conviction that the most important question that any of us can ask ourselves and can consider in our lives is how will we respond to this person? How will we respond to Jesus? And so we're going to hear and consider Matthew as he teaches us, as he introduces us to Jesus Christ and consider what our response should be. And we're going to start at the beginning. Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 17. And I'll just acknowledge this is uh, strange because this is all weird names, okay? But this is the Word of God. And so I think we need to hear it. And I will do my best with pronunciation. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Hear now the Word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. 
And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, it it seems odd to thank You for this passage, uh, but we do because we know it's a gift from You. We know it is Your Word. Um, And it's strange to us uh, to encounter a list of names. And so we need Your help. Uh, Not only to understand the details behind it and the history behind it and the meaning of it, but the meaning of it for our lives. The significance of it for knowing Christ and following Christ this week. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that He would help us to hear and respond. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why does Jesus matter? That is an important question for everyone to answer, whether you're a Christian or not. Jesus has had a significant enough of an impact on our world that we need to ask the question, why does Jesus matter? And certainly as a church, as a congregation created by Christ, we need to answer the question, why does Jesus matter? And Matthew begins to answer that question in these verses that we read. And he answers the question, why does Jesus matter? By giving us Jesus' pedigree. He points us to Jesus' heritage. His family history as a way to show us the significance of who Jesus is and what He did. Now that seems a little strange to us. Because in our culture, if we want to introduce someone of significance, we use their resume, not their family history. Right? It's, it's about what you have done, it's about your education and your work, and the significant things that you've accomplished. That's how we show that you're important. But for the ancient readers of the Gospel of Matthew, to introduce someone important, you always connected them to your, their family. You showed how their significance derived not from their accomplishments, but, from, but, but because of who they came from. What family have they come from measures their, their importance. It's a way of establishing status and importance. And so I want us to consider Jesus' heritage, His pedigree, as Matthew gives it to us. And... Matthew will show us that Jesus matters because of three family traits. Three family characteristics. Jesus comes from a royal family, number one. He comes from a dysfunctional family, number two. And He comes from a renewed family, number three. So first of all, Jesus' royal family. Major family characteristic of Christ is that He came from a royal line. And this is probably the most obvious point of this list that Matthew gives to us. He wants to connect Jesus to the most powerful family in the history of Israel, the family of David. Did you notice in verse 1 that he says son of David before he even says son of Abraham? And that first group of names that starts with Abraham in verse 2, it reaches its climax in David, verse 6. And just in case we don't understand the significance of David, Matthew adds, David the king. 
Matthew wants to us to know that Jesus comes from power. He comes from authority. And not just human authority. Not just human power. 2 Samuel 7 makes it very clear that God chose David and his descendants to represent the divine rule. To represent God's authority. The role of these kings, David and his sons, was to implement God's desires for God's people. They were to represent the agenda and the will of God and to lead God's people in doing it. Why? Why does David's family play this role in the history of Israel? Well, because of Abraham. Remember last week, we said that God had given Abraham's family a job to do. They were called to bring life into the world. And we connected it all the way back to Adam. And we said what had failed to happen in Adam was to be renewed in Abraham. So that the family of Abraham was to fix the problems of the family of Adam. To overcome death and to bring life into the world. But if you know much about the Old Testament, you know that that project did not go very well. (laughs) Over and over again, God's people failed in this task of communicating God's blessing to the world. And so God raises up the family of David. He gives the family of David authority and power to help the family of Abraham fix the problems of the family of Adam. Okay? Family of David, family of Abraham, family of Adam. This is why God had given them power. It's why He had given them authority. It's why He had raised them up to accomplish God's intention for His people and for the world. And Matthew wants us to understand that this is, Jesus, this is what Jesus is about. This is what Jesus represents. Which is to say that Jesus comes with an agenda. And His agenda will mess with yours. I had a conversation with JJ a couple of weeks, my son JJ a couple of weeks ago, about his plan to introduce a monkey into our backyard. Uh, So he sees that we have this huge backyard with all these great oak trees. And of course, obvious desire is let's put a monkey out there and um and so we sit down and have a conversation about this and we're 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 trying to figure out the practicalities of how to do this and i'm bringing up problems and and jj is problem solving and um and so you know well how how do we keep them in the yard well we could put a big net over the whole yard and it kind of got to the ultimate problem is you know jj monkeys make a mess Um, what are we going to do about that? And um, he was convinced that we could train the monkey to come inside, use the toilet, and go back outside. Alright? Here's the deal. I think a lot of times we think of Jesus the way J.J. thought about the monkey. That he'd be a nice addition to our lives, but that he is containable. That he can be caged that his, the scope of His authority can be limited. So Jesus, you can say nice, socially progressive things about serving the poor, but don't say anything about my sexuality. 
or flip it. Jesus, you can condemn all of those people's sexuality, but don't say anything about my money or my plan for my life. Matthew will not let us imagine such a Jesus. Jesus is not containable. This list gives us not a counselor who enhances our life, but a king who owns it, who possesses our lives. And this is why Jesus matters. Because He comes with a royal, transcendent, divine agenda for us and for the world. That's why He matters. How will we respond? This week, how will you respond to Jesus' agenda for your life? Now, if you understand the ancient world of Matthew and understand the context, that first family trait makes a lot of sense. Because Matthew connects Jesus to people of great honor and prestige. And that's what you would wanted to do. If you were going to introduce somebody, you would want to heap on them as much honor as possible. So, royal family makes sense. But what is so remarkable about this list to me is that it is not simply a royal family. It is a dysfunctional family. Matthew doesn't let us ignore the problems of Jesus' past, of His family history. He connects Jesus to powerful people. But these powerful people are deeply flawed. Let me just mention a few. And I really can't even begin to scratch the surface of this point. We would be here a long time. The brokenness of this list. But just let me mention a few. Judah, Tamar, and Perez. Remember, we met Perez last week. Um, He was uh, connected to Boaz and Ruth and their story. Uh, Perez is the son of Tamar through Judah. But let me just remind you of the story of how that happened. Tamar married one of the sons of Judah, married the oldest son of Judah. Uh, She did not have any children through that son, and that son died. So Judah had the responsibility given to him by God to provide her with a husband who would provide descendants. That was part of the the covenant that God made with Abraham. And Judah had that responsibility. But he failed to be responsible for that. He failed to do that. And it's a complicated story. I can't do all the details. But he had not provided a husband for Tamar. So Tamar knowing that Judah is going to come uh, through a certain town, shows up in that town, uh, dresses as a prostitute, and uh, Judah propositions her, and that's how Tamar is born, or that's how Perez is born. Alright? Pretty picture. And we could continue the theme of prostitution through Rahab. Of course, a non-Israelite, and there are four Gentiles as a part of this list, would have been, which would have been a shameful thing 
from the perspective of a Jewish person. You wanted your descendants, your family tree, your family line to be pure. This is not a pure list. Rahab was a prostitute and a Gentile. Of course, we know Ruth was a Gentile. And what about David? The focus of this list, the great king of Israel. What is the little detail that Matthew gives us about David? Well, he fathers Solomon, right? But how does he father Solomon? He doesn't even give us her name. He wants to emphasize who she is. Not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. This great honorable king of Israel who stole a man's wife and then killed that man. And we could keep going through David's sons, whose dysfunctions were even greater than his. But their failures lead to one great tragedy and one great failure. Uh, And we see it um, there in, let's see, it's in verse 11. We follow David's line and we get uh, to the place where God is tired of their rebellion. And He exiles them from the land that He has given to them. And it says... Uh, you know, we have Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, this sounds like just a simple little historical detail that Matthew gives us to keep us on our timeline. And I wish I could communicate how deep this tragedy was, how traumatic it was. This was God divorcing His people. He had given them this land, and that's where He lived with them. But because of their continued dysfunction, He says enough, and He kicks them out of the house. He sends them in exile to Babylon, and He divorces them. It is a deep trauma and a deep tragedy. And for Matthew to mention it, he he evokes this story of shame and loss and pain. I tried to think of what to compare it to, and the only thing I could get is, it's like the words wide right here in Tallahassee. (laughs) Especially for Seminole fans back in the 90s, right? Those two words evoke stories of loss and shame, and if you don't get the reference, ask one of the Seminole fans over there, all right? (laughs) Stories of loss and shame, and this is what Matthew does when he mentions this deportation to Babylon. And all of this brokenness and sadness and trauma and dysfunction is a part of who Jesus is. It is His heritage. It is His pedigree. And Matthew is saying this is why He matters. Why? Why does that matter? Well, I think Matthew wants us to understand that what Jesus comes from, He comes for. So He comes from broken, rebellious, dysfunctional people. And that is who He comes for. In other words, He comes for us. Broken, messed up, dysfunctional people. You see, Jesus doesn't work with stock photos. 
You know those photos that are used in advertisements? And it's this family, and they all have very white teeth, and they all look very happy. And, and the, I always feel like the implication is, is wow, look, look how much better we are than you. Um, we play shoots and ladders every Friday night, light, not Friday night, and we never cuss at each other. You know, I mean, it's this, it's like, oh, it's perfection, it's ideal. That's not who Jesus comes for. That's not what He comes from, and that's not what He comes for. He comes for us, who are more like that blurry photo with the two-year-old who's melting down for the 37th time that day, and the six-year-old with a finger up her nose, and dad ignoring everybody, and mom reaching for the gun. Um, You know, that's who Jesus comes for. Broken, struggling people. And that's why He matters. Why do we then spend so much energy pretending? I feel like sometimes especially the church, we have this insecurity that we want to attract people to Jesus, which is a good desire. But usually what that becomes is we want to attract people to us. And we feel like to attract people, we've got to project an image into the world of the stock photo family. Right? No problems. No struggles. No dysfunction. But that's not Jesus' people. That's not how Matthew introduces us to Jesus. He connects us to Jesus, not through perfection, but through brokenness, through struggle, and through dysfunction. Jesus matters because He did not come into a pretend world for pretend people. He fully enters the mess that we have made. Now, do you feel attention? Because I do. Because you have royal family and then dysfunctional family. How do those two things go together? How do they fit? How can they both be true? Well, because there's a third family characteristic that we find in this list. And that is that Jesus not only comes from a royal family and a dysfunctional family, but He comes from a renewed family. And to see this, we're going to have to do a little math. And I'm horrible at math, so this is going to be really simple. Okay, And we see this in verse 17. Matthew wants us to understand and to notice the numerical symmetry in the list that he gives to us. Right? Three groups of 14. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Six groups of seven. Alright? And understand that Matthew here does not write an exhaustive family tree for Jesus. He collapses uh, some, and so uh, when it says so-and-so fathered so-and-so, that first so-and-so could be a grandfather or a great-grandfather. Okay? He shapes this list in order to communicate his message. And he gives it this symmetry of sevens. Right? And seven, of course, is a, an important number in the Bible. 
Not because it has some magical powers, but because it's connected to the creation story. Right? We know God in Genesis created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, what did He do? He rested. And rest doesn't mean He was exhausted and needed to take a nap. It meant He looked back on His Word on His work and was satisfied with its completion. He was satisfied with the order that He had brought to the world. And so this number seven gets connected to that. This, it gets connected to the work of bringing order to chaos and being satisfied with the completion of work. And this is the role that Jesus plays in this list. He completes it. Right? If you took Jesus out, you would have 14, 14, 13. Right? The symmetry would be gone. And so Matthew, in structuring this list this way, he wants us to see how Jesus is the satisfaction of this list. He is the satisfaction of all these stories of royalty and brokenness. This week, my wife purchased some shelving, some storage for my kids' closet. And um, that's not a good thing for me. Uh, I am as far from handy as you can get. It's like handy... The opposite, that's Jonathan over here, okay? Um, And we always joke, the level of profanity in our house, if Jonathan has a project, it goes very high, okay? Um, So uh, so she she brings these home. And fortunately, you know, it's these that you buy that are made for people like me. That it's it's just, you know, fitting a few parts together. And and, and without too much profanity, uh, works and, and finish them. And there's that feeling when you put the last screw in and it's done. You know that feeling? There's a satisfaction in finishing a job, in having the kitchen completely clean and ordered. Right? You know that, right? You know that feeling. This is what Matthew wants us to feel when we get to the name Jesus. He wants us to feel all the struggle and the tension and the work and the sweat and the blood and the tears. And then He wants us to get to Jesus and step back and say it's done. It's completed. It fits together. Jesus completes the work that God started all the way back with Adam all the way And even though Adam's family failed, and Abraham's family failed, and David's family failed, Jesus comes to complete God's intentions for those families. He is the resolution of this tension between royal agenda of God and dysfunctional humanity. He is the one that brings satisfaction to God's plan and God's design. How? How does He do that? Well, that question should keep us reading the Gospel of Matthew. Because that's what Matthew wants us to see. He wants us to say, how does Jesus play this role of bringing completion and satisfaction to God's life-giving work? And what we'll see here is that Jesus takes His royal authority 
And He uses it on behalf of dysfunctional people. That He moves towards those, and it's always those with the deepest dysfunction, and those who know they're dysfunctional. And He moves towards them, and He heals them, and He renews them. And this work takes Him to the cross, where He takes all the shame of Adam's family, of Abraham's family, of David's family, of the exile, of our sin. He takes all of that shame on Himself and He dies because of it. But then He rises from the dead. And He rises from the dead to renew a family. To renew a family for God. A family that is beloved by God and that belongs to God's purpose and to God's design. And it is as we trust and we follow Him that He brings us in to that renewed family. Beloved by God and belonging to His work. When I was a kid, I, I had a creative streak, which just means that I lied a lot. And um, I once told one of my elementary school teachers we were studying the Revolutionary War, and I told this completely made-up story uh, that I was related uh, to a Revolutionary War soldier, uh, that my grandfather had the, the uniform of this Revolutionary War soldier and the, uh, and the weapons of this soldier. And, you know, and she was, you know, I could tell she was not quite buying it. Uh, but, but, yeah, I spun this whole tale of, of, of a heritage. And I think that touches on a desire that we all have to belong to something unique, to belong to something significant. And Jesus gives us that heritage, and it's not a fiction. It is true. It is the story of God's rule coming to this earth through Jesus. And He makes us a part of it. He makes us a part of that renewed family to know that we are loved by God and to know that we belong to the purpose of God in this world. Let's pray.